This is their new hoax. But you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're all feeling the impact of coronavirus. Today, Qantas stood down 20,000 people, and of course, they're joining a long list. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Welcome to Nursing Review's new podcast. Each episode, we'll look at a different aspect of the pandemic, tackling myths, talking research, and keeping you informed. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost... My name is Connor Burke, and this is the Nursing Review Coronavirus Podcast. In a previous episode, we spoke to Professor David Patterson about the potential COVID vaccines and treatment trials he's been working on. We know that because of good work Australia has done so far with flattening the curve, that his trial has struggled for participants. And we also know that we can't rely on a vaccine turning up in the next year or perhaps even into the future. So as governments around the country are considering easing restrictions, what are our next steps to keep the virus at bay? What is our plan B? Joining me to discuss this is Tammy Hoffman, Professor of Clinical Epidemiology at Bond University. Tammy, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Tammy, non-drug interventions will be key in how we go forward as we wait for potential treatments. Things such as social distancing and messages about washing hands, they all seem to be working pretty well so far. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, non-drug interventions are all we've got. And I mean, go, I mean, how have there been examples when we've used non-clinical interventions successfully and in the long term to combat a virus or a disease? And, you know, what does the research tell us about that? Um, so do you mean from a, a respiratory infection point of view? Well, or well generally, I, I, I guess generally. Disease? I think generally first. Yeah, so probably one of the most well-known and successful examples um, of sort of a, a low-cost, effective non-drug intervention is the insecticide-treated um, bed nets for malaria in, mm-hmm. in, local, in um, low-income countries. So that's, you know, the most effective intervention there is for preventing the um, transmission of malaria, and it's been shown to reduce the, you know, children under five, the death rates of children under five. So that's a, that's a very well-known sort of example of how non-drug interventions can can be life-saving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess there's not much really talk about non-drug interventions. I mean, we, we all know, we're all familiar now with social distancing and these ideas, but I wonder how much the public um, correlates the two. Um, I mean, going forward, we've never found, I don't think, a a vaccine for a coronavirus, another coronavirus. So it is likely that we're going to need to do things such as social distancing, um, washing hands and, and these sorts of ideas. I mean, where did they come up with 1.5 metres away, washing their hands for 30 <laughs> seconds? Um, you know, and I, I, how do we, you know, we've never, I don't remember as a kid being kind of told how to not get the flu, how not to get a cold. It was just part of life. Is that what we're going to be seeing eventually? Yes, I guess that's the problem is non-drug interventions, sometimes it's just thought to be, well, that's just obvious or that's just common sense. And so as a result, these things don't get don't get studied as much as they should. And so when it comes to something like a pandemic where we desperately need to be able to answer the questions about the most effective way of doing something or the best product or the best material or, or technique, we just don't have the answers because the research hasn't been done. Um, and so I think... 
part of this reflects society's obsession with sort of a, a pill for every ill where we sort of wait thinking, oh, the basic scientists will invent some drug or vaccine or something and we'll all be saved. Mm. Um, but the reality is that may not happen. Like, let's hope it does, but it yeah. certainly may not. Um, and even if it does, though, um, any vaccine that is developed will be just for this particular virus. So the next time a respiratory virus or some other type of virus causes an epidemic or a pandemic, then we, we'll need another vaccine or another drug. So the nice thing about non-drug interventions is they're much more generic um, and can apply to respiratory viruses, you know, reducing the outbreak of gastrointestinal um, infection. So it's really an area that's been neglected for far too long um, and we should be making sure we do the research so we've got questions answered now and, and for future outbreaks. Mm -hmm. uh, around the globe, there's also mixed messaging. I mean, I guess that uh, reflects in the lack of research. I mean, I've heard people are keeping six feet away from each other in America. Uh, the UK is talking about two metres on public transport when they come back. Um, some countries are saying wear masks. Here they say don't. Yeah. How do we get yeah. a coherent strategy <laughs> going forward? So the, the masks in particular has been a really polarising um, issue and there's been lots of debate and unfortunately a lot of the time it's the politics has been driving some of the decisions rather than the evidence. Mm. Um, we recently systematic reviewed the evidence so looking at the, the randomised control trials of, of mask wearing. Um, so obviously these aren't done in coronavirus, they've been done in um, general sort of influenza or influenza-like illnesses or other acute respiratory infections was the focus of our systematic review. And there's a, you know, there's a, a handful of trials that have been done um, and the results, some, some of them have been in um, general population, some have been in like householders where somebody's sick and if, if the household wears a mask, does that stop other people in the household getting sick, for example? And then there's, of course, the subset of trials done in health professionals and that that's never wear a mask or not wear a mask. That's which type of mask. So is an N95 more effective than a simple surgical mask, for example? Mm -hmm. But those, the, when we systematically reviewed all those trials, the evidence is, is inconclusive. It's, just, it, it's not clear whether masks are, are um, the answer or not. It looks like they're perhaps not as effective as what a lot of people are assuming. Um, mm -hmm. And so to answer that, we need we do need some more trials. There is a, um, there's a randomised trial just got underway in Denmark of 6,000 people in the community where they're randomising them to wear masks or not. So there is, there is a very potentially very useful trial underway. Mm -hmm. But it's that type of study that we need more of so that we've got the answers and we can make sure that policy decisions are being informed by evidence rather than political persuasion or, you know, popularity or anything else like that. Mm. Why aren't we better prepared for this? We've, you know, we're the most advanced humanity has ever been, scientifically speaking. We've had SARS and MERS in recent memories, but now researchers, through no fault of their own, I think, are worldwide are scrambling. Um, why, can't, you know, why don't we know more about this? Yeah, uh, very simple. It comes down to research funding. <laughs> so, um Certainly during, because of SARS and MERS, we should have then been able to you know, c conduct randomised trials of some of these basic non-drug interventions and get the answers then as to what works and what's most effective and the most effective way and length of material and all these things, but they weren't done. Um, and so we're, now we're exactly, as you said, left scrambling 
And as I said, my fear is that the next pandemic or next epidemic will still be left scrambling because nobody seems to, there's very few organisations around the world that have said, you know, we actually really need the answers to these questions. Everything's been focused on the rush to develop a vaccine and trialling whatever drug is the, seems to be the flavour of the week. Um, so it, it's really quite a conundrum. We are shooting ourselves in the foot now and, and for future outbreaks. Mm. In Australia at the minute, things have slowed down enough that we can probably act going forward with a, a clearer head than most nations. We're quite lucky. Um, Tammy, as a, an epidemiologist, what is your ideal process going forward? If we can ignore economic ramifications, what is our plan B? So I think that we need to have an international consortium that can coordinate non-drug trials across all the countries in the world in the same way that there's an international consortium coordinating a vaccine um, development and testing. So there's one that's based in, based in Norway but involves lots of countries and they're coordinating the testing of eight different candidate vaccines all in parallel. Um, and because of the, the cooperation and the coordination and the existing infrastructure and funding mechanisms, that was already in place prior to this outbreak. So they've been able to sort of hit the ground running with that. There's no equivalent for non-drug interventions. Um, and I think absolutely that, that's what we need is a coordinated effort globally because we don't, there's so many cultural differences and behaviour differences in, in context and environment to different countries. If we just did a trial here in Australia, we wouldn't be able to confidently say it would apply to other countries. So, But we know there's lots of um, behavioural and social science researchers in other countries that if we could all do our part in gathering the evidence, then we could start to get a, a much clearer picture as to what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And now going forward again... Um like I go back to times when I've been ill or, you know, a couple of years ago when I had a flu. And if someone said to me, Connor, you'll never get the flu again if you or you, you know, your likelihood will go down if you take these steps to really clean your hands and watch out for people, um, you know, coughing and spluttering, all these other things, um, I would have done it. But I kind of just never thought about it because flu is a part of life and so is a cold. But do we need to kind of go to the to the schools and really um, going forward, educate children about you know being clean and um, about these sorts of viruses. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's been quite a lot of and trials in daycare centres and schools looking at um, how can we how can we reduce the spread of um, respiratory illness and also gastrointestinal illness. And so I would hope that one of the silver linings that comes out of out of all of this is that perhaps you know some schools are going to be better set up. Um, for example, with hand sanitizers at the entrance to the classroom, for example, and, you know, the cleaning of surfaces like door handles and that, which often um, don't get done. So, yes, let, let's hope that there's some small behaviour changes that um, people take on board as habits now that we can continue. But behaviour change is hard. And if we're talking about a sustained behaviour change, um, there's, there's lots of questions about what's the best way to facilitate that and make it easier for people to keep up these behaviours in the long term. Mm-hmm. Well, Tammy Hoffman, thank you very much for joining us to talk about this. My pleasure.